3: Hello and welcome to the MMQB Monday Morning NFL Podcast. I am your host, Gary Gramling. I'll be joined by a special guest in just a moment here. Uh, we are eh, kind of coming up on the season here. Training camps will maybe be opening soon, and we figure we have just enough time to run out previews of every division on a weekly basis running up to the season. And then we'll have sort of a, a, a bigger preview show right before the season starts. But uh yeah we're gonna we're gonna jump into it here and we are going to uh add a little magic by making it random the order we do we will we will pull the lever and and see who comes up on uh on on the on the board on the wheel on the uh comes out of the hat something like that uh but with that let me bring in our special guest it is indeed andy benoit andy do you know who this week's uh division is gonna be I do. You uh, sent me an outline of what we're going to talk about. Yeah, it's uh, it's the NFC South. We're going to start with the NFC South for no particular reason, just because it seems like a, a good place to start. And no one ever starts with the South divisions. I, I think they're disrespected in that way. I would agree with you. And I think the NFC South, you could argue, and I know
4: maybe I'm not supposed to say this till the end based on the outline you sent me, but I think you could argue there are three teams with, Super Bowl aspirations feel strong as I say it, but probably not to them. I think there are three teams that believe they can win a Super Bowl this season in the
3: South. Well, let's uh, let's jump right into it. We are going to do these in order of last year's finish. So this is not necessarily our prediction of how this year will finish, but we'll give you that prediction at the end of the show. But this is in order of last year's finish, and we're going to start with the New Orleans Saints. Uh, let's get ahead of ourselves because why not uh this offense kind of disappeared the last two Januaries three postseason games they scored 20 points 23 points and 20 points uh I mean is this does this still come back to Breeze's arm strength and is this something that's that's fixable in January that's a good question
4: you know I I hadn't thought about it Until you said it that way, like I, in my, if I hadn't thought in my mind's eye, like, oh, the Saints, yeah, they got to get over those late season declines offensively. But you're right. They have had them in the past couple years. I don't know if uh, there's nothing that jumps out at me that says, oh, I asked the problem. I have to correct that. Part of me wonders if that's just a little bit of an aberration. I mean, and maybe that's a cop out answer, but I, I what do you want? This team has The best offensive line in the NFC, in my opinion, if it's not number one, it's number two to Dallas in a close race. Uh, It it can run the ball. They have a possession passing game. They're probably not an explosive passing game anymore, but they're not reliant on that either. So I don't don't know what the the specific reason would be for why they're petering out or if we can expect that to be a problem moving forward. My guess is it's a coincidence or an aberration.
3: Yeah, I, I guess if you're going to pinpoint a problem, it's it's the lack of explosive plays. And, you know, I, I, they you think back to that Rams game, uh, the NFC title game, which obviously they, they you know, probably should have won. Uh, you think back at that game, though, there was an opportunity to get a, a big shot to Ted Ginn. That, uh, you know, the throw just wasn't there last year. The one downfield shot they got against the Vikings was actually Taysom Hill. So, yeah, you you just kind of wonder if, I don't know, just uh, philosophically having to put together these sustained drives again and again and again in January is just a, a tough way to do it.
4: Yeah, because I will say, sometimes you look at a, a Saints passing game in, or a Saints offense, I mean, we're talking about the passing game, but you look at the Saints offense and it'll be like late second quarter and they'll have three points all of a sudden. And they kind of sneak up on you as methodical at times, and there you do run the risk of inherently limiting your opportunities or, or keeping the game artificially close when you play a style that's based on sustaining long drives. Because when the drives don't work, you've eaten up a lot of time and and maybe compromised some of your rhythm for the game later, and and so that that could be a bit of an issue. Is it gets down to how many explosive plays can you make? It just maybe it's the the Drew Brees factor, and we're remembering all the the great things he's done every year after year, but. I don't. I just have a trouble viewing this team as in terms of anything negative offensively. No. I don't, and you know, it probably is. Coaches love Drew Brees. They love him because he plays the position exactly the way it's taught to be played. And I tend to think of the game in terms of how coaches do, because that's who I talk with the most. That's who teaches me football. And we. I bet there is a tendency to get caught in your narrow vision of what a quarterback is. And, and lose sight of the bigger picture and you look at Breeze, how oh, he gets through his progressions, oh like how efficient he is, look at the pocket movement uh, the explosive plays aren't there and the arm strength is a problem at times that matter. that means something
3: Yeah it, it, I, I do wonder on, on the positive side, they uh, look, they they upgraded a number two receiver they, they brought in Emmanuel Sanders uh, on top of that, Alvin Kamara was not quite himself last year battled through a lot of injuries, you figure he's going to be 100% going into the year, and and you just wonder if, you know, the fact that the playmakers will be better, maybe you get a little bit, uh, maybe you get a few more explosive plays than uh, than what you've gotten.
4: Well, I think a lot of explosive plays come from speed at the wide receiver position, one way or the other. You can have running backs that can be dominant, but the only time I've ever really seen a running back dominant to the degree that you thought of him in terms of explosive plays and you got to take away explosive plays was probably adrian peterson in 2012 when he had almost set the rushing record i think what was he nine yards short at the end of the season on that year yeah eight or nine yards yeah yeah something like that i remember because pam oliver told him after the game how close he was and he couldn't he couldn't believe how close he came without getting it but um You know, Your explosive offense, it comes from your passing game and how you generate it. And a lot of teams, it's going to be throwing the ball through the air. But I think what some teams have figured out is it can also come in your run after catch, which is how New Orleans would get it if they're going to get explosive plays. They're not a vertical passing offense at all anymore. Um, I would also love to know, we're, I bet you this offense ranks uh, very high in terms of semi-explosive plays. So what's an explosive pass play? 20-plus yards, I think it is, is, is how most people determine it. 12 yards for a run, 20 yards for a pass. I, mm-hmm. I would imagine the Saints, in terms of number of passes that go between 12 and 18 yards, I bet you they're in the top one-third of the league in that, which raises the
3: question, then, what? what's the expectation w- with explosive plays? Uh, other side of the ball, defensively, they they have all these defensive backs. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about how many safeties are on the are on the roster now, uh, after adding Malcolm Jenkins and and D J Swininger here. So. Uh, they're going to put them all on the field. I, I guess this is going to look like last year's defense where DeMario Davis was really the only linebacker who saw uh, major snaps. I mean, Kiko Alonso was, was playing maybe, uh, I don't know, 25, 30 snaps a game, something like that, but uh, it just seems like they're they're going to load up on defensive backs again. Well, I do think they'll go with a
4: lot of defensive backs. One thing they did last season, because they did play a lot of dime. But they did a three two dime defense where it was three defensive linemen, two linebackers, and they kind of use their linebackers interchangeably. I'm looking at who had uh uh the snap counts. But you know what? How many snaps would you guess AJ Klein played for them last season? What percent of the snaps? This oh this wow. surprises me.
3: Um I would say thirty percent of the snaps. You, okay, you're right on Alonzo, by the way. He's at he's
4: at 27%. Um, uh, A.J. Klein's at 71%
3: of the snaps last season. Wow. Oh, man, I would not have... Uh, no, I wouldn't I have would guessed not have that. I mean, that.
4: I, I knew they kept a second linebacker on the field often, and I figured they rotated that spot, and they, and they did, and Alonzo took snaps from Klein later in the year. Uh, but Alonzo, according to Pro Football Reference, and I... I I don't think I've seen them get it wrong before. Seventy percent of the seventy-one percent of the snaps. But the the point is, it's it's about the safeties, like you're saying. It's whether it's four defensive linemen and one linebacker, or three defensive linemen and two linebackers. And in their case, it's the three and two. In part because I think you're a little bit more versatile in what you can do with some of your blitzes that way, Uh, and they're not overly deep in terms of pass rushers at defensive tackle. They have some good D tackles David Onyemada, uh, Marcus Hunt's a good backup. Malcolm Brown's a good starting nose tackle. But those guys are not pure pass rushers. Sheldon Rankins maybe is. So let's assume they keep two linebackers on the field, 3-2 defense. You're a little bit versatile in some of your fronts and coverages. But having those defensive backs is what makes that whole package work like you're talking about. So Malcolm Jenkins, it's strong safety, and he can play any spot. Uh, any free, any free safety, strong safety, slot corner, if you want. The only thing that surprised me about Jenkins coming aboard, and I know we talked about about this a few weeks ago, Gary, was uh, I think Chauncey Gardner Johnson has a chance to be a big time star in the NFL. He, he his positive plays last year really jumped down. It's got he has that miscellaneous extra juice where it just kind of shows on the film. Um, He's essentially, if that's what he is, and Mark uh, Malcolm Jenkins is so smart that it's hard to say anyone's comparable to him. he's probably the best in the league at positioning himself in zone coverage in ways that complicate things for the defense or for the offense. but if 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 Gardner Johnson has a decent football iQ, he's essentially a more explosive version of Malcolm Jenkins in terms of how you would use him. So I just wonder what that means and where they're going to go with that. And then I think Marcus Williams at free safety is one of the best rangiest center fielders in the NFL. So this is an
3: embarrassment of riches for them here. All right, we will uh, we'll discuss. The Saints outlook a little bit more uh, at the end of the show when we unveil our uh, our predictions and our thoughts on the division as a whole. But uh, let's move on to the next team. That's uh, last year's second place finisher, the Atlanta Falcons, 7-9 Falcons. Uh, I mean, look, obviously everyone knows the story of that season was a 1-7 start. And then the six and two finish. Uh, you would hope that they sort of pick up where they left off. But what was what was behind their defensive turnaround last year? Because it, it was, I mean, it, it, you know, they they what they, they were giving up uh, more than thirty points a game at the halfway point last season, and then they were uh, you know significantly lower after that, including I mean they they. Uh, the the first game of the second half of the season, they went to New Orleans and held the Saints to nine points. So uh, something, something happened there. What was it? They got a little bit closer back to their foundation
4: as a defense. You know, it's interesting. In 2016, and nobody talked about this at the time, and I don't know if people really noticed it, but Dan Quinn took over the defensive play calling in the second half of that season, and the Falcons went on a Super Bowl run. And this past year, Dan Quinn basically gave up some of the defensive play calling or some of the defensive responsibilities. He, he handed it off to Raheem Morris, basically handled the pass side of the defense. And then Jeff Obrick, their linebackers coach, former 49er linebacker, uh, he handled the run side of the defense, which is a very unusual way to do things, by the way. I don't know exactly exactly how they did it, but obviously it, it worked out well for them because they got closer to their foundation. And, and one thing I, I would imagine, it'd be fun to ask these guys this, if you do divide the the, the responsibilities like that, it probably would bring you back, or back to your foundation a little naturally because if one guy is only doing the run defense, one guy is only doing the pass defense, I don't know if there's as much room for creativity in your play calling there without having those two departments overlap you know it's it's if you're uh, if you're Rex Ryan for example you're thinking of coverage and the pass rush together when you're going really crazy with what you're doing you're starting at one spot rather than the other but you're starting at that spot with an end point in mind hey let's do a really crazy pass rush because if we if we roll the coverage away from Revis we're going to crowd the field you know that kind of thing I don't know if you'd think the same way if you're only responsible for the pass rush or only responsible for the coverage. I may, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you'd be even more creative, but I think Atlanta understands what their foundation and their identity is, and it's, it's the cover three stuff. It's the man-to-man stuff, and really, Gary, when they've been at their best over the years it's when they get a little more tethered to -to man-to-man and a little less tethered to cover three because that cover three scheme has some holes in it. And unless you have a great defense, uh, and and every scheme has holes, but so many teams play cover three that that offenses are keenly aware of the holes of it because you're always game-planning against it. Unless you have a great wealth of talent on defense, it's hard to get past some of those limitations of cover three.
3: Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, they did add Dante Fowler, who I, I guess, you know, talent wise, he's probably the best edge rusher they've had there in, in quite a while. I, I mean, you know, Vic Beasley kind of fell off the map after after something of a breakout season. And, and now Fowler maybe gives you a little more ability to get the, you know, get get the pressure you need to get. And then, I don't know, maybe maybe you can mix in a little more uh, pure cover three. Well, and Fowler
4: also gives you more of a presence on early down, So you've shored up your first and second down defense, which that does a lot for your third down defense. People think I had this conversation with a front office guy a few months ago. He asked me, what do you uh, what do think is more important, first down or or third down? And I said, without hesitation, I said, first down and that charmed him he said i know everything i need to know about you right now because uh, the thinking is third down but in the nfl those guys realize that first downs where it's at for two reasons one is the first down scenario often impacts significantly your third down scenario and you know and then number two is first down you can just about do everything especially offensively it's bit more for the offense but it goes both ways first down you can you have your run and pass game available to you fully you're not beholden to the situation at all so that's where teams really show their identity and Dante Fowler can give you a better first down presence than you got from Vic Beasley. Fowler's much better in traffic. That's the difference. Beasley just needed too much space. He he was great if he had room and a lot of space to work with, but when he didn't, he was highly ineffective too much of the time. So Fowler next to Grady Jarrett, it's a better defensive line. It's still not a I don't know if it's a great defensive line, though, Gary. I mean, Marlon yeah. Davidson, their second round pick, that'll be the Auburn guy, that's going to be a big deal for them, I think. If, if he plays well, maybe everything changes. If he doesn't, I don't know if it's a great
3: defensive line still. No, I would agree with that. Um, offensively, you know, the two big changes are Austin Hooper out and they went and got Hayden Hurst in a, in a trade for Baltimore. And uh, obviously Todd Gurley in at this point. Um, what, uh, what do you expect their run game to look like with Gurley as – I mean, look, I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised if they are planning on him having 350 touches or something like that, like he did a couple years ago. But uh, there's not a whole lot of quality depth behind him, so you figure that he's going to have a he's going to have a pretty major role, and you're probably going to going to build around what he does.
4: I mean, possibly. I hate. I don't want to be. I don't want to be rude to Todd Gurley because he's he's been a great player before. But what is it that he does that would make you build? Like, what 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 does he do to build a running game around?
3: Well, I don't know. Do you look at? I guess this is the question. Do you look at the uh, well, the, the 2017 season, you know, when he had, uh, or excuse me, Offensive Player of the Year type season and, and uh, you know, was considered the best back in the league? Do you look at that and try and replicate it when, correct me if I'm wrong, they, you know, the Rams were more heavy on outside zone stuff back then, or is he just not that runner anymore? It has had, you know, have the knee problems taken enough away from him that he just doesn't, uh, have the ability to do what he did in that year.
4: It's the, it's it's the latter one. And, and maybe he improves and his knee gets stronger. I hope so. Um, and I don't know what's going on with his knee exactly, but when you watch him on film, it's very apparent he does not plant and cut on his left knee the way he used to. So when he's sticking a foot in the ground, and it's not just can he go left and right off of it. There were I remember a play last year against Seattle where it was it was in the Thursday game, so the one up in Seattle where the Seahawks mm-hmm. were in their lime green outfits. And uh, Gurley had, I think, it was a 12-yard run very early in the game. And it was off to the left, and I'm sure – I didn't watch that game on TV. I saw the film later, but I'm sure the announcer said, you know, Todd Gurley, vintage, showing vintage Todd Gurley, old signs of himself. It it was one of those plays that if he'd stuck his left knee in and and cut it up the hash mark, he would have had 20 yards. And there's no stat that shows those yards that should be gained that are not gained, but that's what teams look at as much as the yards that are gained. So whether it's Gurley – and I don't know what you would do with Gurley that you wouldn't do with any other back – uh, my guess is they want a rotation of guys because they, they probably like Ido Smith, but he, he had some injuries last year. He played about half the game, so I don't know if they want to fully count on him this year. Brian Hill's probably just a guy. He does some, he's had some nice things. I believe he's a, a pretty strong low-to-the-ground runner at times. I, I could be mistaking uh, who I'm thinking of. Uh, but, you know, Brian Hill's a rotational back. Gurley's one of the three guys in the rotation, I think, with the idea that maybe – you catch lightning in a bottle because that's happened before, but I don't think they would be counting on that.
3: Yeah. All right.
4: It's going to bug me. and i got to look up Brian. It's going to bug me that I don't uh, – you can talk, but I'm going to be Googling or I'm going to be searching my film notes on Brian Hill now.
3: I think we all – All want to know? Uh, all need to know uh, the bri- – uh, No, I, I think we're all thinking <clears throat> about Brian Hill uh, all the time these days. Well, I remember when he coached the Magic, and he was um, –
4: uh, That's he right. was known, a Brian he, hill. Yeah. He was known for wearing a big long stick with a paddle, like on his I don't know if he wore it on his head or what, but he did that in drills with Shaquille O'Neal to uh help train Shaq to you know shoot over people, or maybe it was Penny Hardaway, something like that.
3: Here's a here's a quick trivia question. I haven't done this yet. It's it's an exercise, I guess, less than a trivia question. I'm going to search for Brian Hill. Who do you think will come up first, the, the former Magic coach or the uh, current Falcons running back?
4: Oh, I'm going to go. Can I go with option C, which is I bet there's someone named Brian Hill in some field that we've never thought of, like a famous orthopedic surgeon or something named Brian Real, Hill.
3: Oh, all right. You can go with option C. Here we go. I'm Googling it right now, incognito window, so I don't uh, skew, skew the results here. Yep. And it is the running back. Oh, the running back got the first three results.
4: You sure that the incognito works that way?
3: Yeah, it, it, I think so. Right? It, it strips away, uh, or or it, it or it, it takes away your uh, search history. When you search do history. history, yeah. yeah. Okay.
4: Um, well, oh, there you go. So Brian Hill, the basketball coach, probably wasn't a great reference for me to make.
3: Uh I don't know. I mean, pre-internet, Ask Jeeves days. He probably he probably dominates that uh, search engine. But.
4: I'm all right, so I, I do have my Brian Hill notes up, and the one that stands out is from 2018. He barely showed up in 2019, so I, I'm definitely thinking of a different guy. But um, Hill, this is 2018, end of the season. Hill replaced Coleman in the second half uh, of, the, of the week 16 game. He got to the edges within context a few times, but he doesn't have Coleman's juice. So Hills an outside yeah. zone runner. Who's the st- There was a guy that was a low to the ground runner for them a few years ago that was deceptively effective. I'm trying uh-huh. to figure out who that was. I mean, are you thinking of uh Kadri Allison? No, cuz that's that's their fifth round pick last year, right? Yeah. I it's am thinking maybe I'm thinking of Ward. Teron Ward.
3: Oh, yeah. I kind of liked him. Which is <laughs> just, just from 3 years ago now. Yep. I was gonna say he hasn't he hasn't been in the league for a couple of years now.
4: Yeah, so maybe I was wrong to like him. That's who I'm. Th- yeah, I'm look- yeah, yeah. I'm looking at Teron Ward, and the images you can tell he's a low to the ground runner just on his uh, his Google images. Well, he's and a- actually his profile picture looks like a low to the ground runner as well. He kind of has that Maurice Jones Drew build
3: to him. Yeah. Now he's a he's a small dude. Well, he's yeah. a he's a short dude, I should say. He's not a small dude.
4: Yeah. So anyway, if they had Teron Ward, I'd probably have these guys going. 11 and 5, at least. But if it's Brian Hill, I don't know what they're going to (laughs) be.
3: Man, this was quite the deep dive into the uh, Falcons (laughs) hypothetical (laughs) uh, multiverse of of running back depth
1: charts. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it tim horton's new lunch deal simple delicious and just 5.99 now that's a good deal only at your neighborhood tim's u.s only price of participation vary terms apply if you love sports and true crime then there's a new podcast from executive producer dan patrick and hosted by me jay harris that you won't want to miss playing dirty sports scandals each week i'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever
0: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access
3: company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's go on to Tampa. And look, the big question here, and, and we've been trying to read the tea leaves and and we're getting some hints, but uh, ultimately, is this going to look like a, a Tom Brady New England offense or is it going to look like a uh, Bruce Arians offense?
4: It's going to look like a Bruce Arians offense. And, um, you know, <clears throat> both of those guys have said that and – Brady, you know, we're going to hear Brady rejuvenated, learning a new offense, all that stuff, and I'm sure there's some validity to that in this case. Uh, there's probably often validity to that. What is really interesting? So the Bruce Arians offense, deeper dropbacks, more aggressive passing. That that Arians cliche at this point, because he's he said it enough. No no risk it, no biscuit. You know, he means that, and he's had quarterbacks that adhere to that. Roethlisberger, Andrew Luck, Carson Palmer, Jameis Winston, all are big-bodied, mostly pocket-oriented passers with functional mobility and a really aggressive thrower's mindset. Brady does not have the function, well, he's functional in the pocket. He doesn't have the mobility those guys have, but... I do think he can have their aggressive downfield passing mindset. What'll be interesting, Gary, because Brady obviously has been in, in more of a ball control offense for most of his career. We've talked before about in 2017, the year they lost to the Eagles in the Super Bowl. That year, they were a deeper drop back, aerial, vertical type of offense, a little bit in New England, and I thought Brady played exceptionally well doing that. But what's different about that system and Arians Arians often does this with only five guys pass blocking. He gets all five guys out in routes, which Brady has done a lot over the years in New England. Not recently, but he did years ago. Arians gets everybody out in routes, and then they throw deep, which puts a lot more burden on your offensive line, and ultimately that puts more burden on your quarterback because what happens is I don't I don't know if there are many offensive lines in the NFL that would be great every snap with, with – protecting for five- and seven-step dropbacks without having the tight end or running back helping them. It's just that's a lot to ask in the NFL. And so what happens is the quarterback becomes aware of that, and the quarterback realizes on some level, maybe it's directly, maybe Arian says this to him, hey, we're counting on you to beat some of these pass rushers. You're going to have to avoid them. You're going to have to make uh, some throws with some hits looming. And Brady's always had the, uh, the metal to do that. He's tough in the pocket, but... But or and, however you want to look at the second part here, when Brady doesn't play well, a lot of it's, it stems from him anticipating pressure or playing a little bit fast and, and wanting to avoid getting hit. And I don't mean that at all to say that, oh, he's afraid to get hit. I, I think he just tends to speed himself up a little bit when he gets uncomfortable. It doesn't happen often. I mean, he's Tom Brady, but that's what happens when he doesn't play his best. So what I want to know is now that he's being asked... To take these deeper dropbacks behind only five guys in protection, which is not something he's done a whole lot in his career. How big of issue will it be if he starts playing fast? What will what will he fall back on if that happens?
3: Yeah, he's. Uh, I, I mean, he had a history of making a lot of uh, a lot of offensive linemen look good in New England over the years. I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious yep. to to see if that plays out the same way with this system in Tampa Bay. I'm I'm thinking of a uh, Donovan Smith who has been you know asked to pass block for uh 30 seconds per snap for his entire <laughs> career so
4: well and to be fair and donovan smith's a solid player we uh, he still is and uh he's our we bet him at the super bowl didn't we a few years ago we did yeah yeah that's probably why we're saying nice things about him now um He's a good, solid left tackle. Tristan Wirfs—they drafted at right tackle. That's a big deal. So they—they they understand what when you play the way they play, they know you got to have linemen that can do that. You can't just plug in. Uh, a, a Marcus Cannon's better than this, but early in his career, Marcus Cannon was kind of an average right tackle. You can't—you can't just plug those guys in and go to go to battle with them. You need a Ryan Jensen at center, who's one of the highest paid. Ali Marpet at left guard, high drafted second round guy. Uh, you, you need a pedigreed offensive line. Having said all that, Tampa Bay's old line gear last year was not very good. A lot of I, I've been going through all of the first and second down sacks that that mm-hmm. every team's given up, and I've gone through all the interception plays. And obviously, there were a lot of Buccaneer interception plays last year with Winston. The pass rush was a factor, or the the poor pass protection was a big factor throughout a lot of these. Not enough that you'd say Winston deserves less culpability than he's been given for his mistakes, but they had a bad offensive line uh, too often last season. They need to play better than they did.
3: And uh, defensively, this secondary is interesting. It it feels like they've been trying to address the secondary since the Rondé Barber years, Uh, and they've loaded up on all these guys, all these like day two picks over the last two drafts, I, I guess three drafts. If you go back to, to Justin Evans being a, being a second rounder back in 2017, but I mean, what is this adding up to at this point? And do they have the, uh, you know, the type of secondary that, that Todd Bowles wants. So like, you know, Todd Bowles loves his safeties. Uh, do, do they have, uh, especially with Antoine Winfield joining a, this year's second round pick. I mean, do they have the kind of flexibility that, that you think a Bowles defense, uh, needs to have back there
4: they're they're getting there they're they're building towards that Bulls loves his safeties because Bulls wants to play man coverage and also disguise and and, and then come after you at the blitz that's why he likes the man coverage so they've invested in that position smartly I think and now it's just a matter of getting these young guys to play a little bit better, so let's let's go through their secondary. You want you want to do that? Because I bet you a lot of our listeners, even though they're probably hardcore football fans because they're listening to this show, I don't know if many people would think of Tampa Bay's personnel in their secondary.
3: Yeah, I mean they they have. I, I'm I'm looking at the uh, their draft history right now. They they have seven dudes who were day two picks and are still on their rookie contracts. So like seven guys who were day two picks since 2017. And then Jordan Whitehead was a, was a fourth rounder in 2018 uh, as far as their their top eight goes here.
4: Yep, and they were they rotated some of these guys. Uh, so the, the key to the secondary is Carlton Davis, their corner, second-round pick in 2018, and he's gotten gradually better. He had a tough start to his career, as a lot of young corners do. He's gotten gradually better, and if he continues on that trajectory – I don't know if you quite say he's a true number one stop corner type of guy, but he is certainly their best corner and someone that they can feel comfortable with on, on just about any matchup, understanding that that he might have to have a short memory when he's facing the Julio Joneses of the world. And I've heard Davis does have a short memory. He's got that, that cornerback's ability to block it out and bounce back. But he's their guy, and if he doesn't play well, then everything we say here probably goes down the tubes because they need a corner like that. Um, Sean Murphy Bunting, second-round pick a year ago, has become the slot corner, which is unusual because he's a long-bodied guy, but that's what Bulls likes. He wants lanky defensive backs. Davis is a little bit longer. Jamel Dean, who they drafted in the third round last year, is a much longer – Jamel Dean, I think, is – He's 6'1", 206, so he's not as long as I thought he was, but he plays upright. In fact, I'd say he's a little bit stiff at times, and that was part of his problem last season. He struggled against change of direction routes. He mm-hmm. did get better as the season went along, but this this has been a big offseason for Jamel Dean. I don't know what he's done, but whatever it is, it's important because he had some very specific things to work on I think he's capable So those are their main cornerbacks. MJ Stewart is also in the mix, and some think he might be a slot guy rather than a – he's certainly not an outside guy, but maybe a slot guy, maybe a safety those are the corners, and then the safeties, like you talked about. Mike Edwards, a versatile guy from Kentucky last year, was a little bit in and out of the lineup. They like him more on running downs rather than passing downs. They obviously aren't over the moon about him as an every-down player because they, they drafted Antoine Winfield in the second round, and, and maybe that's about Justin Evans as well, who is uh, – currently their center fielder is Winfield I obviously I haven't watched him as much cuz he's a college guy is he a, is more
3: he's more of a strong safety than a free safety is that correct uh he's pretty versatile i i think he fits better as a strong safety but uh yeah. i i could i don't know i could see him being stretched he's one of those guys who he and and you don't want to put too much stock into testing but he tested better than than i think a lot of people expected and uh you kind of wonder if if maybe he has even more versatility than uh than you might have thought.
4: Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, it's only five nine. It's not very big for. It's not very long for a free safety. That doesn't mean you can't play free safety, but I I would imagine they want interchangeable safeties anyway, because that's that's ultimately what a disguise oriented matchup type defense demands. But it's Winfield and Whitehead is in the mix, and then actually Andrew Adams played down the stretch last year as well. And he is an undrafted, looks like fifth-year pro now. He's kind of been in and out of lineups throughout his career. But that tells you that they weren't overly comfortable with Mike Edwards in every facet. So they've got young players. We know that. Of course they do. They've been drafting all these guys second, third round. And it's a matter of them continuing to improve. And so far, most of them have. It's hard to have everyone do it at the same time, though, I would imagine. Although Green Bay's done it recently. Green Bay's got more talent in the secondary
3: than the Bucs do, though alright let's uh... let's go to the fourth and final team here. And we're not going to say a whole lot about the Carolina Panthers. So we'll, we'll have to make up for it during the season, but we just don't know a whole lot about what they're going to do here. It's, it's uh you know, as everyone knows, they, they took only defensive players in the draft. We don't know what kind of scheme they're going to, uh, they're necessarily going to roll out. I did want to ask you though, Andy, uh, I mean, we've seen Joe Brady, uh, you know, we, he was at LSU last year. He was on the St. Staff before that. So we, uh, you know, we, we have a general feel of, of what he is. Uh, Christian McCaffrey and and obviously you're going to look at Christian McCaffrey's numbers and say, well, how can you possibly do more with him in the passing game? But uh, I I guess my question is, Andy, is, is there room to do more with Christian McCaffrey in the passing game here?
4: Absolutely, because it's about how you leverage him in the passing game. Remember, the defense. And we. It's, uh, it sounds bizarre and, and like re- reductive, but it's it's important. It's easy to forget, and I'm always forgetting this. The defense doesn't know before the snap where the ball is going. So we watch these plays and we see how it goes, and then and then we analyze it that way. But we forget that the defense doesn't know the results, and they have to analyze the play. So. I say that because Christian McCaffrey, yeah, his receiving numbers are huge, but he wasn't used in a way that made the defense have to think a whole lot. Not as much as you could make a defense have to think, given that McCaffrey is such a unique and dynamic weapon. A lot of his catches have come out of the backfield. I mean, a lot of them. And he he is capable of, of going to the slot or going out wide and running routes like that. He's not quite Alvin Kamara in that sense, but he's in that category, so which means he's uh, top five easily. So you can use them all over the formation, which they have not done. These mostly been a really good check down weapon. Almost like, remember Danny Woodhead years ago had huge numbers for the Chargers one year, and, and the Charger backs always have big pass receiving numbers because Phillip Rivers is so good at getting to the check down. He's been more of a Danny Woodhead than he has been an Alvin Kamara style of guy. He's more of a check down receiving back, and clearly he's an Alvin Kamara type of talent. So I would imagine... Joe Brady's going to move McCaffrey around the formation, and whoever they feel their number one receiver is, it's probably Robbie Anderson in their mind. Maybe it's DJ Moore. But they're going to want to put him on the same side as that guy, just like the the Saints put Kamara on the same side of the formation as Michael Thomas a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. or the Steelers used to do that with Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown. And and they're going to work that way, and they're going to make the defense have to play football Strategically and intellectually before the snap, and they're going to try
3: to capitalize on that advantage. All right. Here we go, Andy. We're going to do this for every division at the end of the show. Uh, four questions here. Uh, we're going to start with uh, give me your predicted order of finish.
4: Well, I. So I've I've struggled with predictions, which is bizarre because I've I've done them every year mm-hmm. since that's, I was 11 years old. Yep, that's and why I'm, you're doing them again. I grow to, I've grown to hate them. I don't ever know if I'm supposed to take if I'm supposed to do predictions or projections because I do think it's all a guessing game ultimately. So. Part of me feels like, as a responsible analyst, a projection needs to be like, all right, who here's? How are they supposed to finish based on how good they are right now? Even though that's that's not quite the same as a prediction. Does that make
3: sense? No, but uh, I I will. I will. It. It. No. No. Then it is a prediction because we're saying how good they are right now. That's that's how would you you would base uh, your predicted. Predictions on. Predicted, predicted predictions. That's what we're calling this. Well, I'll give you an example then to show yes. you that it does make sense. Okay. The
4: example is this. I think the Saints, you have to say, are the, are the likely favorite in the NFC South. It's the most complete offense and probably the most complete defense. If the Falcons, we didn't talk about their offensive line, but if, if, if Chris Lindstrom, who was their first round pick last year, was injured a lot of the year, and Caleb McGarry, who was their first round pick and had a lot of ups and downs as a rookie. Let's let's say those guys improve and, and become more like what you'd expect first rounders to be. Let's say they take a nice step forward, then I could see Atlanta being the team. I could see Atlanta winning this division very easily. Not not easily win the division, but I, I could easily envision it on my end. I don't think it I don't think you can say right now that Atlanta is better than New Orleans, but I think if one or two things goes a certain way there's a path for Atlanta to, to be that division favorite. The problem is with the, when it comes to guys like Chris Lindstrom and Caleb McGarry, I'm only guessing as to whether they'll improve or not. I mean, I don't know if they're going to – nobody knows that. It's just now we're
3: just guessing. So you're giving like a range of projections is, is what you're talking about.
4: Well, I mean, if i are allowed to do that, then everyone's range is 8 and 8 to 11 and 5. I mean, I, I, would love have, I would love to have a range of projections and have that satisfy people. I assume that that's not what you want
3: no it's it's not what anyone wants. Everyone wants your uh your okay, call it a projected order of finish. How about that? Does that make you feel better about it? It does, but now I'm just gonna pick the teams that are
4: like <laughs> if they were to play right now, who would win? which yeah, it's gonna be too much like last year's. i think I think the Saints are number one. the foul Fal- say the Falcons are two, the bucks are three, and the Panthers are four,
3: yeah. And and I I agree. I agree with all four of those uh, projections. Those are my predictions.
4: (laughs) They feel they feel lazy and and unthoughtful. Well, but I don't know what else to do with that.
3: Okay, which of these teams you consider? We we talked about a little bit at the top. Which of these teams you consider legitimate Super Bowl contenders?
4: Um, I would say three or the four are legitimate contenders, but if you ask me, that by the time we add that up, I'll probably at the end of this whole setup have twenty teams as legitimate Super Bowl contenders, which I do believe. I, I do think the NFL's fairly wide open, and a lot of people point to the Niners as an example from last year. Uh, I guess that's a good example. That was a, a yeah. that was a, it's a very good example.
3: No that's okay I, I think I picked uh 28 playoff teams last year so that's uh that's perfectly reasonable uh, most <laughs> and all of them were the lions. you know what we um <laughs> what we need what we need to do on this i think
4: moving forward is predict like specific things like which which uh quarterback will have the most passing yards or which which offense will have the best uh, or which defense will have the best passer rating against them that kind of thing
3: that's a very specific one the second one do you want to give those?
4: Well, I don't know if... I mean, I haven't prepared for that. Oh. I'm just saying it. I think the Saints will, to answer your question on the defensive passer rating against them. That's the way to measure a defense, by the way. That's the one that holds up pretty solidly every year. Passer and rating against... Opponent's passer rating is really what shows the quality pass defense. The problem... It's not really a problem because the pass rush will ultimately kind of impact the passer rating. If the pass rush makes a QB throw incomplete that factors into the rating I don't think the pass rating accounts for the pass rush overall though. so if you're getting sacks or strip fumbles which are enormous plays you know that doesn't get factored in but that's not factored into scoring or passing yards either I guess
3: well how about this The, the the last two I had on this list were most likely to win MVP and most likely to win defensive player of the year so that kind of goes back to your most passing yards type of thing, because you would figure it's one of the quarterbacks.
4: Uh, yeah, possibly the problem with that. And I, I probably shouldn't say this because I, I, I love being one of the the voters for those awards, but a lot of them are just a function of how voters behave too. It's like MVP. It's, Tom Brady, let's say Tom Brady has a much better chance at it than Christian McCaffrey for the reason that Tom Brady is going to be on TV five times this year. And McCaffrey, I, I don't know what their schedule, I'm guessing it's no more
3: than one. Well, he's also a quarterback is why he has a better chance.
4: Well, yeah, I guess so, yeah. But all right, let's say uh, is Matt Ryan, I bet the Falcons are not on TV a whole lot either. So Brady and, and Breeze have a better shot at it than Ryan. I just think the human factor gets involved a little bit on MVP voting. MVP maybe not quite as much. but A lot of those voting, which is that's just normal. Should, that's, that's how that goes.
3: Should we call it most likely to win Andy Benoit's MVP vote?
4: Well, no, because I only vote for the guys I see on TV.
3: Hmm. No, I'm,
4: I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But um, all right, I, I'll, I'll quit. I'll quit being a pain in the ass here. The MVP, most likely MVP, uh, I will say is Tom Brady for this. For this comp, uh, division,
3: and how about a uh, defensive player of the year? Oof. Defensive player, do you have one? You know, I I was looking at it. I mean, uh, uh, like midway through one, last one season, guy that I, really stands out. I, I think Shaq Barrett, based on what he did last year, is, is the guy a lot of people would cite. Um, like halfway through last season, I thought Marshawn Lattimore was having a defensive player of the year type of year. And then he just sort of fell off in, in the second. half, He got hurt too, but, uh, you know, so that didn't, that didn't really work out. I'm not sure who else in this division besides those two guys would even move into the conversation.
4: Well, I thought, I thought Cam is the guy that stands out above the other two. He's not above. Oh, the I other forgot two. Cam right. Jordan. Yeah, you're right. You're about right. Those
3: other two though. You're right. Cam Jordan's a, a good one.
4: I don't know if anyone on Atlanta. The problem is the Defensive Player of the Year does not often go to linebacker. Eh, maybe I take that. I mean, Bobby Wagner and Keeley have gotten some attention. Has Wagner ever won Defensive Player of the
3: Year? Uh, I'm going to say no, but I, I also haven't looked it up. I'll look it up right now. But
0: uh,
4: okay, um, I like the Lattimore one. I, I think it's Cam Jordan. Those most likely. Look at I'm looking at this list of guys. Yeah, linebackers don't win this award very often. Keekly
3: in 2013, other than that, you have to go back to Brian Urlacher in 2005. Mm Mm-hmm. So a lot of these guys, Gilmore's a corner last
4: year, uh, but then look at the rest. It's Aaron Donald a couple, two years, Khalil Mack, J.J. Watt for three of the four years before Mack, Terrell Suggs back in 2011, it's a lot of defensive linemen. Yeah, cuz they get stats. Yep. All Sometimes right. it's defensive backs cuz they get some stats too.
3: Yeah, yeah, it, you know, I I thought last year Gilmore sort of rose based on the fact that the the Patriots defense was so dominant and and really just scored so many points themselves and also there was no uh, uh there's no pass rusher who really stood out. That much. I mean, Aaron Donald obviously had another uh, monster year, but you know his 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 box score stats didn't match up to what he did in 2018, and and that, and I, I think people are right. The Which, human that's element what's tough. Is right. The, yeah. the, the human element. I I think people might have just been tired of voting for Aaron Donald every
4: year. That's what happens. Is Aaron Donald eventually? You're not competing against the other guys in the league. You're competing against the the seasons you just had, yeah, and right. so Donald was not as dominant on paper and. 19 19s he was in said I did. I did think Gilmore was far and away the easy choice on defensive player of the year, though. Okay. I thought he was sensational. All right. And doing these studies this offseason, watching these interception plays, I think he's even better
3: than I thought. Good. I'm. I'm glad. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we got that right. All right. Did you know? I'm looking. All right. We got to go. But um,
4: <laughs> well Never mind. I was going to say they used to separate the defensive player of the year by conference. But that apparently is something that was done by uh, the United Press International. Whatever, wow, UPI. Whatever that is. You remember that?
3: The monsters over at UPI. I don't remember UPI votes, but yeah.
4: All right. Anyway, that's, <laughs> uh, that's called ending the show on a whimper. I was going to say. <laughs> uh,
3: it'll transition nicely into our UPI show coming up next week. Now, we'll, we'll have another division next week. Uh, I, I'm... I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of thinking AFC North is what I'm feeling right now as we finish up this show. But we'll... you just you want to stick with the no pattern deal? Yeah, yeah, no pattern at all. No warning. Just uh, maybe I'm just misdirecting people at this point. Maybe it'll be like NFC East or something. Just blow people's minds here. But uh, Andy, once again, thank you for coming on, and uh, we'll call this just goodbye for now. All right. Thanks, Gary the MMQB Monday Morning NFL Podcast is me, Gary Gramling. Special thanks once again to Andy Benoit for joining me this week. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Ravick is emeritus editor of the MMQB. Andy Benoit is the founder of the MMQB NFL Podcast. Keep up with our entire lineup of podcasts five days a week by subscribing to the MMQB NFL Podcast for free on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, please do us a favor and leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show which is also available on spotify radio.com stitcher si.com and wherever else you listen to podcasts
0: when you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year 100,000 mile limited warranty you stop thinking about what you can't do